Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's been an interesting week. I, uh, you never know what's going to happen or what you get to do if you're a pastor. They, they don't teach you a lot of things when you go to college and seminary. If they did, you probably would do something else. God blessed me this week to, to do something um, pretty interesting. Not many weeks that you get to touch a brand new baby. The Penningtons had a little boy and got to see them this week and drop a meal off to them. Also, to, but just to, to see a new life is a miracle. But then last night to be with Charlie and Jan and watch her launch, depart, and head for heaven was another blessing. I had my hand on her forehead when she took her last breath. And so to, to touch new life and, 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 and to be there when a life ended, but it didn't end, did it? Isn't that the beautiful thing for us? Amen? Praise God. <laughs> You know, what a, what a joy uh, to, to be able to see a life well lived. And I, I reflected a lot last night. I didn't sleep much last night. Thought of Miss Jan most of the night, Miss Jan, Miss Charlie, Mr. Charlie. And um, just thought about her and how she lived her life. And you know, it was very seldom that you ever saw Jan. She She was such a... Uh, an inspiration in that she was a person who was afflicted with Parkinson's for a long time. And, and I never once heard her complain. Never once. In her adversity, she always had a smile and she always had an encouraging word. Always had an encouraging word. Never heard anything negative come out of her mouth. I thought, man, I hope someday... <laughs> That can be said about me. Hmm. Probably won't, but I wish you could. <laughs> I want us to begin this morning by looking back at uh, the next few verses in the first chapter of John's gospel. I want us to look at the last thing that John the Baptist said about Jesus on that second day as portrayed in the text here. Jesus, or John said about Jesus... I saw the Holy Spirit descending upon him. And so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Now, as John shares his testimony about Jesus, he's simply sharing what he knows about Jesus. And that's what a testimony is. That's, that's what a witness does. You tell what you know. And you know, for us as Christians, that's all that God expects us to do is to tell what we know about Jesus. And that shouldn't be that hard. Each day, John reveals, can you bring that down just a little bit? I, I'm hearing an echo. Y'all hearing an echo? Maybe it's just me. There you go. Um, each day, John reveals the new information that he's learning about Jesus. And as you read the text, you find that he first refers to Jesus as the Messiah, but he doesn't say Jesus is the Messiah. He just said there's one in the crowd that's greater than all of us, and we don't even know who he is yet. 
He refers to him also the second day as the Son of God. So he's given us some information that's very important about who Jesus is. And then on this third consecutive day, he, um, he, he, John is standing there with two of his disciples. Uh, you've got John the Baptist and these two other men. They're standing together. And I know, I know there's a crowd around, but it's kind of like the three are in this little group and there's a conversation. And uh, we don't know who they are to begin with. You read some other scripture, you find out that they were John and, and Andrew, and they're there with John the Baptist. But, but John looks at Jesus and he points to him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so we get that third expression of, of who Jesus is. Now, I want you to notice that John chose not to be a silent witness concerning Jesus. Uh, he, he chose not to expect others to come to Christ just based on how he lived his life. And he chose not to be an incidental witness who typically only wants to talk about the weather and how beautiful things are that God has made. And he, he wasn't even a public witness who, who had no trouble preaching to large crowds but wouldn't talk to a single individual. No, John chose to be an authentic witness who lived his life in such a way that he was always looking for an opportunity to talk to somebody uh, about the Jesus that he knew. And so he would share that information. He was looking for that opportunity. Now, there are several things that could have happened when these three men got together, when John the Baptist and, and John and Andrew got together. Three things could have happened. John could have kept silent. He could have kept what he knew about Jesus to himself and not risk the chance that he would lose his disciples. He could have been stingy and he could have been silent. Uh, and these two men might never have found out who Jesus was and, and if that had happened then they could have lived their life and died without ever knowing Jesus and, and sadly they would have missed out on heaven because they didn't know who Jesus is. And, and you know, but John, he, he took advantage of the opportunity to be able to share what he knew and he told the truth. He didn't talk about the weather. He didn't talk about fishing. He didn't talk about ball games or politics. He talked about Jesus and he pointed to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, I also want you to notice uh, that these two men could have made at least one of three decisions. They were already with John and they could have chose to stay with John. They could have been loyal to him to the very end. Or they could have split up, one going with John the Baptist and the other going with Jesus. Or these two men could make the decision to leave John and then follow Jesus and praise God. That's exactly what they did. And in this first chapter of John's gospel, we find in verse 35, it says, the, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and then he declared, look, behold, there is the Lamb of God. And it says, then John's two disciples turned and they followed Jesus. So together they decided to go with Jesus. That's interesting. That's, that's very important. They were one, they were unified in their decision and that's a good thing because I want you to hear what Jesus has to say about oneness in the 17th chapter of John's gospel beginning in verse 17. Jesus is praying for the church. Listen to what he says. He says, make them pure. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the disciples. He's talking about disciples then, but he's also talking about us who are disciples today. He says, make them pure and holy by teaching them your words of truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. You know, I, I said to you last week that God saved you to send you. And you see that right here. He says in verse 19, and I give myself entirely to you so that they also might be entirely yours. He said in verse 20, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me because of their testimony. That's the end product of us being a witness. Others come to know the Lord. He says in verse 21, my prayer for all of them is that they will be one just as you and I are one. Father, that just as you are in me and I am in you, so they will be in us and the world will believe that you sent me. He says, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are, I in them and you in me, all being perfected into one, then the world will know that you sent me and will understand that you love them as much as you love me. What a beautiful prayer. On the day that these two men decided to follow Jesus, they acted as one in their decision making. They were of the same mind and that is huge, huge when you think about it. They agreed that following Jesus was the right thing to do. And so they were unified in their decision and their, their unified decision was probably pretty easy that day. They're just three guys standing there and two of them decided to follow this man that was said of him, he is the Lamb of God. But little did they know how important it would be in the future for them to live in oneness with Christ and also with each other. And neither did they have any idea just how hard that was going to be. It is in fact so hard that Jesus made oneness for his disciples a priority of his prayer life. That's how hard it is. And please note exactly what he prayed for. Jesus specifically prayed for his disciples to be one with each other. In fact, he was so interested in that and it was so important to him that three times he specifically prayed for there to be unity among them. He even prays for perfect oneness for all of us. Well, he's praying for unity. But he also prays in this passage of scripture for the lost world to, uh, to be reached as a result of the church's oneness and as a result of our unity. And he says, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Now, when you study this passage, you'll see that there is a positional application here in that Jesus is praying for them to become one in him, one in Christ. What does that mean? That means one body, one fellowship, one family, one church. Positionally, we are one in Christ in the eyes of God. But there's also a practical application here in that Jesus was and he still is praying for us to be able to get along with each other and serve together as if we're just one person in perfect harmony as we work together. The apostle Paul writes in the 12th chapter of Romans, 
Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are all parts of his one body and each of us has different work to do. And since we're all one body in Christ, we belong to each other. And each of us needs all the others. You are not meant to be independent or isolated. We're to be together as a body held together by the love and grace of our Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up only one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews and some are Gentiles and some are slaves and some are free, but we have all been baptized into Christ's body by one spirit and we have all received the same spirit. I have said many times, and I've always believed this, that God has an amazing sense of humor in that he has made us all so different. And yet he wants us to come together. In fact, he expects us to come together under one roof and be in spiritual unity and and get along. He has great expectation that that's gonna happen. Some days I think he sits in heaven and just shakes his head. Mm. Folks, God wants us and expects us to live together in peace and harmony. Amen? He does. But you and I know just how hard that is. It's not easy to do that. Sometimes I can't get along with myself. And yet God built that mindset into the DNA of the church from the very beginning. Dr. Luke reminds us of that reality in Acts chapter two, verse 42, where he penned these words. He said, they continued steadily learning the teaching of the apostles and they joined in the fellowship. Folks, the, the two top priorities for oneness in a fellowship are peace and harmony. You will not have oneness without peace and harmony. Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, make every effort. He didn't just say every now and then think about it. He said, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bonds of peace. When he wrote to the Romans, he said, let us concentrate, concentrate, focus on the things that make for harmony and for the growth of our fellowship together. Well, just how in the world are we supposed to achieve and maintain spiritual unity? How do we do that? How do we do that? I'm a firm believer if God expects you to do it, he's gonna give you the way to do it, right? He's never gonna ask us to do anything and he doesn't give us the ability to do it. Well, he's provided some information for us to know how to live in spiritual unity through the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And he says in chapter two, verse one, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in purpose. Now, Paul very clearly gives us four benchmarks here that I believe will help us to achieve spiritual Unity. Here's the first. He says, oneness happens when you choose to be like-minded. 
like-minded. Now, that does not mean that you and I have to share the same likes and dislikes. We can be different because we are different. Amen? We are. Nor does it mean that you and I have to be in complete agreement about all the non-essential beliefs that godly people sometimes differ over. But what it does require is that you allow yourself to be controlled by a deep knowledge of and a commitment to the word of God or the word of Christ that energizes you by the power of the spirit. Look at what Paul wrote in Colossians 3.16. And Paul's very serious about this. He says, let the words of Christ in all their richness Live in your hearts and make you wise. Use his word to teach and to counsel each other. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And, and whatever you do or say, let it be as a representative of the Lord Jesus. All the while giving thanks through him to God the Father. So when you walk in the spirit, you can maintain that kind of spiritual attitude. In fact, you can be like-minded, but you have to want to do that. You have to want to do that. Something else I see here is that unified oneness comes uh, to a fellowship when we seek to love each other with the same love. Now, what I think he's meaning here, I think what Paul is saying is that we're to love everybody equally. We're not to be... Um, a click. We're not to show favoritism to other people. We're not to be partial. We're to love each other the same. Uh, the kind of love that Paul is referring to is godlike love. It's agape love, the love that is not emotional, uh, an emotional attraction, but of the will and of choice. It's it's the kind of love you express when you devote your heart and your life to loving one another with brotherly love. Paul talks about it in Romans 12 when he says this. He says, don't just pretend to love others. Don't be a pretender. He says, really love them and, and hate what is wrong and stand on the side of the good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. So friends, respect each other is what he's saying. As God's children and also as brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on to say that spiritual oneness is also the product of being one in spirit. And if you study the Greek word here, you'll find that it literally means one souled. One souled. We talked about souls earlier. Baby being a living soul. He's saying that this word means literally we're just one soul or one souled. It refers to a passionate and common commitment to the same spiritual goal. By its very definition, it excludes all divisive attitudes such as selfishness and hatred and envy and jealousy and, and all the countless other manifestations of the evil fruit of self-love. Paul also tells us here in this passage in Philippians that oneness can also happen when we focus, when we're focused on and committed to the same purpose. Folks, oneness happens when we share the same kingdom agenda. If we're not careful, we all want to have our own agenda, but if we stay focused on the kingdom agenda, God's agenda, then we can be one in spirit. He says that unity is required to advance the kingdom of God. 
Sadly, spiritual unity is typically interrupted by fleshly behavior. But again, Paul says in Philippians 1.27, but whatever happens to me, he says, you must live in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ as citizens of heaven. And then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you were standing side by side fighting together for the good news. Notice he says standing side by side fighting together. He didn't say fighting each other. Fighting together, and that is so important. Last week in my message, uh, the very first passage of Scripture that I read to you came from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7 and following. In fact, I think uh, Paula read that this morning, a little bit of that. I refer to that passage of Scripture because it reminds us of what we're supposed to be doing while we wait for the return of Christ. We're to be his witness. We're to share what we know about the Lord. But Paul also says a whole lot more about what is necessary in order to be a successful witness. And, and so I want us to revisit this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says this letter is from Paul. Chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sothenes, we are writing to the church of God in Corinth you who have been called by God to be his own holy people, he made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did all Christians everywhere. Uh, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus or, or upon Jesus Christ, our Lord and theirs, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you his grace and peace. In verse 4, Paul writes, I can never stop thanking God for all the generous gifts that he has given you. Now that you belong to Christ Jesus, he has enriched your church with the gifts of eloquence and every kind of knowledge. This shows that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ he will keep you strong right up into the end and he will keep you free from all blame on the great day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will surely do this for you for he always does just what he says and he is the one who invites you into this wonderful fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In verse 10 he concludes this section of scripture by saying to the Corinthians, now dear brothers and sisters, I appeal to you by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to stop arguing, arguing among yourselves. Let there be real harmony so there won't be division in the church. I plead with you to be of one mind united in thought and in purpose. There are three things I want to point out in this passage of scripture to you this morning. And the first is found in these first three verses. It has to do with the fact that you have to will yourself to love imperfect people in order to live in peace with them. Notice that. He says, may God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you his grace and his peace. If you're a Christian and you've lived with the Lord for very long, you know that there's no end to God's amazing grace for us who belong to him. 
There's no end. The bucket never runs empty of the grace that you and I need. Amen? Praise God for that fact. And it is his amazing grace that comes through knowing Jesus Christ that brings us into peace with God. What Jesus did at the cross makes it possible for us to be at peace with the Lord. By his sacrifice, we are made right with God. We get to have peace with God. And we need that. Folks, you have to choose to love imperfect people just like Jesus did in order to live in peace with them. And here's the challenge. None of us are perfect. I am told that it is the desire of most educators here in America to figure out new ways to help students increase their test scores. And that can be good if we're really trying to teach our kids how to learn and not just do good on tests. One popular theory states that the best way to improve children's ability is to puff up their self-esteem because high achievers tend to have high self-esteem. However, researchers have found that simply building children's egos can breed many negative traits as well, such as indifference to excellence, inability to overcome adversity, and aggressiveness towards people who might criticize them. Well, John Maxwell, he, he wrote about this and he said, I always place a high value on praising people and especially children. But I also believe that you have to base praise on truth. On truth. And he said, here's how I encourage and lead people. First of all, I value all people. Why? Because God values everybody. Red, yellow, black, and white, no matter what your language is, no matter where you live, God puts a high value on life. Second of all, I always praise their effort. Not everybody's gonna accomplish the same thing or reach the same goal. But if they're trying, we need to encourage them and say, good job for trying. But third, he says, only reward performance. Now, what does he mean by that? He means not everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> Reward performance. He says, this is a method that I use in, in encouraging everybody, including myself. And he goes on to say, and no matter where I fail or how many mistakes I make, I don't let my failures devalue my worth as a person. Why? Because God uses people who fail. Why? Because there aren't any other kind of people around. <laughs> I like that. I can understand that. Wow. It is essential to peace that we learn to love imperfect people and when we learn to do that, we might even like ourselves. Here's a second thought. It also takes a thankful attitude on your part to help produce oneness in your church. In verse four, Paul says, I can never stop thanking God. If you read the letters that Paul wrote to the many different churches that he uh, either started or ministered to, you'll find that he was always starting off with encouraging words like, 
All praise to God, all glory to God. I thank my God for you. He wrote in another letter, we thank God and we pray for you. And in another, he said, we can't help but thank God for you. Paul was always thanking God for people of the church. And he was always praying for their unity. Paul, like other believers before him, believed that being thankful to God was, was an extremely important thing. I, I read a psalm this week, Psalms 100, verse 1 says, Shout with joy to the Lord, O earth. Worship the Lord with gladness and come before him, singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is good, or is God. He says, he made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And he says this in verse four, and I, and I can only think about this. I mean, you know, what if Harvest did this? Enter his gates with thanksgiving. What if we came through the door singing to the Lord? Go into his courts with praise, give thanks to him, and bless him, bless his name, for the Lord is good and his unfailing love continues forever and his thankfulness continues to each generation. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but there's a story out there about Snoopy. He interests me every now and then. He's seen looking through the window of a family's home at Thanksgiving and he sees the delicious meal that they have on the table and as Snoopy is, is standing there looking, he begins to complain because all he's got to eat is dog food. And so he ponders the situation and he pauses and, and with a little bit of time, he finally comes to his senses and he concludes, well, you know, it could have been worse. I, I could have been born a turkey. That's called an attitude adjustment. A lot to be said about our lot in life, a lot. You know, if we would all stop and think about things, we, we have a, lot, a lot, whole lot more to be thankful for than we deserve. We really do. And we need to learn how to express our thankfulness. I, I ran across some, some pointers on how to do that from Dr. Benny Tate this week. And, and I found that he's got, uh, he says, thankfulness can be achieved by moving through three stages. First stage is you begin by thinking about what you have. He says, you got to begin thinking about the blessings that God has already blessed you with. He said, unfortunately, too many times we are grumbly hateful when we should be humbly grateful. Mm. We're so blessed. Just don't think about how God has blessed your life. Second of all, he said, thankfulness moves to giving thanks. And you go, Pastor, well, that's a no-brainer. Well, is it? Do we really give thanks to the Lord? How, how, how many times when we're talking to God, is it all about that grocery list of things that you want him to give you? When was the last time you, you just said, thank you, Lord, for this and for this and for this and for this and for this? He said, next, thankfulness should lead us to, to talking about it or telling. He said, do you realize that gratitude doesn't mean much if it stays in your heart? We can go, oh, I, I'm thankful for what I have, but when do you express that? 
I got a challenge for you this week. I, I dare you to do this. Go home, count your blessings, get out a piece of paper, and write God a letter and tell him what you're thankful for. Sound good? You ought to do that. And while you're at it, get your three cards out. Think about three people that have influenced your life and their encouragement to you and write them a note thanking them for what they mean to you. Try it. I think it's going to be very spiritually therapeutic for you. I think you'll enjoy it. Just try me. Look at verse 10. Here's a third thought. Spiritual unity requires that you understand who your real enemy is. This may be the most important part of this message. Don't miss it. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I appeal to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to stop arguing among yourselves and let there be real harmony so there won't be any divisions in the church. I plead with you to be of one mind, united in thought and in purpose. Dr. Tony Evans writes that we don't have to be Christians for very long to discover that the Christian life is a battleground and not a playground. There, this, is, this is because we're waging war in conflict with a spiritual foe. And don't miss what he just said. We're waging war in conflict with a spiritual foe. But one of Satan's strategies is to get us to forget that we are fighting a spiritual battle and to focus on the physical, tangible uh, challenges that we face instead. He said, unfortunately, he will often use people to do just that. Now, you don't have to answer this, but have you ever considered this thought that my life would be so wonderful if it weren't for people? <laughs> and I could have left out the word people and just left it blank and you could have filled in the blank. But are people the real source of our problem? Paula can tell you she read the scripture. Dr. Evans says otherwise. Now, just stop and think about it. Be honest. Most of the time, the problems that we encounter in some way or another are all linked to a person or to people. It's relationship issues. It could be with a mate. It could be with family or coworkers or your teachers or, or even your best friend. But is are people really the source of our problems? And, and again, Dr. Evans says it this way. He says, if you look a little bit closer behind the scenes of these conflicts and challenges in your life, you will see someone else who is lurking there with a convening scheme to disarm and defeat you, and that someone is Satan. Busy pulling your string, pushing your buttons in this invisible war raging all around us. Satan's got a strategy. And dadgum, that rascal, he still uses the same stuff today that he used in the garden. And we're not smart enough to figure it out. He's doing nothing new. He's not that smart. He's not that creative. 
He's only got the same bag of tricks that he's always used. His strategy is really simple. He likes to use people to facilitate our downfall, our spiritual downfall by driving a wedge between us and others in order to shadow our unity and draw our focus away from God. He's done it, he's doing it, and he always will as long as he's allowed to do what he does. But guys, I want you to think about this. The Trinitarian nature of God is what? Oneness, oneness. Everything about God screams oneness. He is just one God. Even though we see him in three different persons, he's still the same God, amen? He's just one God. God is the God of unity and he hangs out where oneness abounds. Folks, people are not our problem. Satan's our problem. He's my problem. He's your problem. He's our problem. We're all fighting the same war and we all have the same enemy. Dr. Evans says your problem isn't the person that you think it is. Your problem is that a demon is influencing them toward disruption. You go, well, preacher, we're, we're living We're living, you know, it's 2018. There are no demons now. (laughs) That's what Satan wants us to believe. It really is. I promise you what scripture, what was written in scripture 2,000 years ago is still applicable today. And we can can name it what we want to name it and we can label it what we want to label it and we can put medicine to try to get rid of it. But look at what he says here, Ephesians 6, 12. For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against those mighty powers of darkness who rule this world and against wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. Now, Satan can only do three things to people. He can possess, oppress, are obsess. If you're a Christian, he cannot possess you because the spirit of God lives in you. But he can still oppress you and he can still obsess you. And he is good at that. Sometimes they use me and sometimes they use you. Angels and demons are created beings. They're spiritual beings that have no physical form. That's why sometimes they inhabit a form that they can use for their own agenda. For example, Satan slithered into the garden in a snake, did he not? And if you remember, there's an occasion where Jesus cast out some demons that were in this man and he sent them down a hill to drown in a bunch of pigs. Satan's all about division. God's all about oneness. He's about unity. And I got news for you. If Satan and his demons aren't bothering you today, you might be on their calendar for tomorrow. And don't you forget that. So pastor, what can I do to promote oneness in my church? And How can I keep myself from being used by Satan? First of all, understand that people are not your problem. That's a hard thing to do. It is so hard, but that's what scripture teaches us. People are not our problem. We have an enemy out there that we can't see. 
So understand that people aren't our problem, but also here's the second thing. Always pray about every struggle that you're going through. Very thankful for the men that showed up yesterday at prayer breakfast to pray for our church. We had the largest crowd we've ever had in 17 years. The largest crowd we've ever had for men's prayer breakfast was yesterday. And, and we prayed for the needs of our church and we gave thanks to God. If you were there, thank you for being there. If you weren't there, there would be another in, in about a month. And we're going to do it again. And I'd like for you to come be a part of that. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be careful and watch out for the attacks of the devil. Yes, he's real and he's your great enemy. He prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. Peter says, take a firm stand against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that <coughs> your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering that you are. I challenge you to think about this the next time that you're faced with a situation or an issue and there's a possibility that you might be in conflict with someone, would you please take that matter to the Lord in prayer? Before you do anything else, take it to the Lord in prayer. Pray for a resolution. Pray for peace. Pray for protection. Pray for wisdom for all parties concerned. And pray for oneness in the body of Christ. And pray that the evil spirit of divisiveness will be driven out. And more than anything, pray that when you enter this place, you will not bring the spirit of the devil with you. Pray that. Why? Because sometimes he follows us. And we need to be careful that we don't bring him in. Mark in his gospel tells us of an encounter that Jesus had with a family that was very troubled and, and they were hurting uh, it appears that they had a son that was demon-possessed, so much so that that demon was constantly trying to kill their boy, sometimes throwing him into the fire, sometimes throwing him into the water. And evidently, the, uh, some of the uh, disciples had had an encounter with this young man, and they had tried to cast out the demon, but they failed. And then later on, Jesus comes on the scene and he successfully is able to cast this demon out of the boy and he delivered him. But later, later the disciples wanted to know why, why they'd failed. It's recorded in the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel. He says in verse 28 that when Jesus went into the house, his followers began asking him privately, why? Why couldn't we force that evil spirit out? And Jesus answered them. He says that kind of spirit can only be forced out by prayer. By prayer. I confess to you that so often for me, and I'm sure it fits you as well, the last thing we do when we're confronted with an issue is pray. Us men, I know how you think. We think we can defeat anything. We think we can wrestle it in our own strength and power and fix it. But Jesus says it only can be made right through prayer. 
The only way to achieve and maintain the spiritual unity that we're expected to have as God's people is through prayer. We have to live daily in the power of God and we do that by praying and being in tune and in touch with our Father. You see, God himself is the only one capable of putting the devil in his place and keeping him at bay. Otherwise, you're going to lose. But guys, how's your prayer life? We were talking a little bit yesterday about New Year's resolutions. Mike said he didn't make any this year. He made one last year and he vowed to keep it this year. He made one that he wasn't going to make any New Year's resolutions last year. And he vowed to keep that same one this year. (laughs) So... If you want you want to take a challenge, it's this. Pray for yourself. You go, preacher, that, that's rather selfish. No, it's not. Because if, if your prayer life's not right with God, if, if your heart and life's not right with God, your prayers aren't going to get to God for somebody else. One of the greatest things somebody told me one time is pray for yourself. Be right with God first. Then, then when you pray for somebody else, it can get to God. So here's my challenge today. What do you need to pray for yourself about? Our invitation is Ronnie comes and he's gonna come in just a minute. Our invitation is all about prayer this morning. Maybe you need to come and pray for yourself. Once you've got prayed up, maybe then you can pray for others. But we need to be praying about having a right attitude with God. Because if this relationship between you and God is not right, guess what? We see it in this relationship. You have a hard time getting along with people when you're not right with God. How's your prayer life? Let's pray. Father, I know I have not the ability to pray and ask you to forgive other people if I have not first asked you to forgive me. I confess to you, Lord, not only are there times when I get up and look in the mirror that I don't like myself, but I confess to you that there are times that when I get up in the morning, I'm not very likable. Most of the time, that's because of my attitude. Lord, you promised that you would shape all of us into the image of your son. And I thank you that that was a promise. I thank you, Lord, that you're not finished. And I thank you, Lord, that every day when we wake up according to your word, every day is a new day. It's a day when we can experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. So, Lord, I claim that promise today, thanking you for who you are, thanking you for who you're making me. And thank you, Lord, for not being done. Because, Lord, I know I'm not where I need to be. None of us are. We're human beings and we have a sin nature and we tend to 
want to do what we want to do instead of what you want us to do. And that gets us in all kind of a mess. And it gets us crossed with people. And Lord, quite honestly, relationships is one of the most challenging things we have to deal with. Just getting along with people. Being one with brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray not only for our church, but for the church across the world. If we're going to reach the lost, then we have to love one another. Because the world is judging God based on what they see in us. So Lord, humble us today, all of us. Bring us to our knees and help us, Lord, to desire to repent of our attitudes and our selfishness. God, help us to surrender our lives to being Christ-like, to being loving and forgiving. Teach us how to love one another. Teach us how to love ourselves. Because until we learn to love ourselves, we're never going to love anybody else. Help us to be humbly grateful. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And thank you, Lord, for forgiveness, and grace, and mercy. Be glorified, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.